0: This episode is sponsored by our friends at Dukan. Launch your online store in 30 seconds. No coding or design skills required. Whether you are a small business trying to go online, a teacher looking to set up digital presence, or you just want to sell a goat, Dukan is your one-stop solution. At the start of the pandemic, when small businesses were struggling, Dukan helped over a million merchants move from offline to online. Founder of Dukan is also billion Moonshots alumni. He shared his story of making $25,000 per month in college to now building a $100 million startup. So start your 14 day free trial now at mydukan.io. Right, Sukhman, so you and your co-founder worked as data consultants, where you help companies understand their customers. In these roles, you felt the work you did exploited customer data and directly provided millions of dollars in value to these companies. You felt like villains at work, and that led to building CIDR. Now, this is a really cool story. We'll get into that, but I'm curious, where was your head at when you were just graduating out of university? What plans did you have then?
1: Yeah, great question. So Will and I actually met during our Master's of Data Analytics. And what, we, what happened with us is we decided that um, we both had a skill set and we both had a lot of ambition. But what we realized is that in order to get companies to, to listen to us, we had to have data to support our, our hypotheses. So when we went to go do our master's in data analytics, that was our mission. How do we make meaningful impacts using data? So upon completion of our program, Will and I went into data consulting to do exactly that, to, to make a meaningful change, to move the needle uh, and to, to change a corporate strategy based on their data. And, and and we learned a lot during this time. I think we both went into consulting because it's high exposure. Uh, we worked with tons of different companies um, and tons of different problem areas and tons of different industries. And, and we're kind of exposed to the general realm of data in a, in a very cool way that you wouldn't have been able to just working at one company particularly so for us i think that coming out of school it was really how do we dive as deep as possible into this realm of 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 data and, and ai and analytics
0: right okay that makes sense and yeah let's talk about like when you got into uh deloitte when you were working at deloitte what was going through your mind
1: Oh, I was just excited to be there. So Deloitte had just spun out uh, a new team called Omnia AI. And it was a very cool project where they took a lot of analytics talent from across the, the company and put them into this small and very powerful team. And the idea was, how do we change the ecosystem based on AI? Everyone kind of knew that AI was going to change the world, but nobody really knew how what that meant for a practical business. So uh, it was a really cool time to, to, to be there. And, and the work that we got to do was, was working with these Huge and, and massive executives uh, on how they're going to change their corporate strategy, listening to to what we had to bring. So, um, sorry, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna slow that down. The, the, your question exactly on that was. So, could you? Repeat? My question exactly.
0: My question exactly like was exactly this. So I just want to know like what was what was going on in your mind when you were working at Deloitte? Like what like especially like you know everything. It could be basically you were excited about work. What what, what sort of work you were doing? Who were you working with? Right, and right. in the back of your mind, what were you trying to like? What thesis were you trying to create for yourself?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. It. And so, so like I was saying, there's, there's tons of different industries that that we were working in, and some of the cool problem areas was. Helping, uh, there, we went from everywhere, from like not-for-profit organizations, helping them come up with a way to make uh, better, get better donors. To working with a mining institution for autonomous mining, how do you get more out of the ground without putting people at risk who are, who are underground right there? Um, to all the way to insurance, how do we speed up the insurance process? People who don't need to be waiting, how do we make sure that they're getting their claims uh, handled in, in a timely and fashionable manner? So. And I always knew data was powerful, but seeing it come to life was was a different situation because there was a lot of change that we were able to make. Unfortunately, not all the changes that were happening were good, but there was so much that can be created because of data.
0: Yeah, data is definitely important, right? Because when you have to the when you have to make these massive decisions, it's better to make data driven decisions than just based on instinct because you are affecting so many lives, a big industry, a big company. Now, when did you think and what exactly happened where you thought that, okay, it's, maybe it's not that good? Yeah. Um, so what happened was as we continued doing this, we started getting
1: into a lot of consumer use cases, which was essentially finding ways to increase the bottom line or increase marketing or um, improve personalization. But in order to do that, the data that was being collected was customer data or user data or public data or personal data. And it slowly started to seem as if companies were becoming addicted to this idea of collecting and hoarding data. And they truly believed that the data was theirs. And that didn't sit well. Specifically, I remember working um, on a project, not, not at my, my former company, but a general project, where companies were coming together to create um, a data for to share data amongst each other. And that didn't sit well because, actually, I was a customer of two of the companies sharing data. I didn't want those two companies to be sharing data about me. And what would happen is they were going to change their terms and conditions, and I would have accepted, and I wouldn't have known that my data is going to the other company. And when we started to see this, Will and I actually went home and and started looking at ways to protect our own data. We're like, there's there's this paradigm shift happening where users want the right to privacy. But companies feel as if they own the data and are addicted to collecting this data. So where where does that balance happen? And we started working on a way for us to protect our own privacy, make it hard for companies to recognize who we are, where we are, what we're doing, what we like, without our permission. Because we truly believe that data belongs to the individual, not to the company. And we believe that, hey, sometimes I'm willing to share my data, but my data is an asset. And if it's an asset, I deserve to get compensated. So we came up with CIDR, and CIDR is actually an acronym. It stands for Control Your Data Earn Royalties. And it's okay. a lot of. It. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Wow. Yeah, it, it, was a, it was a cool name that we came up with while walking to the woods one day.
0: <laughs> nice, nice. I love it because same, like exactly last year, me and my buddy, we were like, we we're building a dating startup. We we're like, what should we name this? And then we go to Goa. Goa is a like vacation yeah. destination in India. And that's where we went hotel. And we we're like, let's name it one because it's about finding that one person. But yeah, anyways, that's a cool way to come up with a name. Yeah, please go ahead.
1: Yeah. So ever since then, what we realized is that uh, the, the mission of the company is to, to create an internet where you own and get compensated for your data. We have three pillars. Pillar number one is privacy. You have the right to choose if you want to stay private or share your information. Pillar number two is if you ever do choose to disclose your data with a company, you you deserve compensation. And pillar number three is simplicity, that you shouldn't have to change the way that you browse and that you should be able to do this in a seamless and and simple way
0: got it got it i'm actually curious so you mentioned about these companies changing terms and conditions and people just accepting it without actually looking through it because that's how we do it right like today facebook i'm using well simple a lot well simple recently came up with the new terms and conditions what should people do should people actually go through it and be like wait i don't agree to this i'm gonna stop using this product how do you think about that it's also super hard to say no yeah i think what happens is is Governing companies happens in three
1: folds, right? The first one is, is the company kind of governs itself. We can't trust the company always, but sometimes a company will have a moral backbone. Um, and what happens there is the company tries to react to the user sentiment, and that's where it becomes important. When people be start to speak more about privacy, the company will start to govern itself in a way in which it reflects what the user demands. And we'll start to see more companies going in that way. The second one here is also as users demand more privacy, We'll start to see regulation coming in and we are already seeing this. We're seeing things happening in Canada with new privacy laws on on data housing and and how data can be used. And similarly, very recent announcement in the US where um, companies are or the government is giving particular use cases on how data can be used. So as as people become more demanding of privacy and data ownership, companies and, and governments will reflect that sentiment itself. So I think it's about starting that conversation. Um, I think it's hard for us to, at this current state to, to say no to the services that we become so reliant on, uh, but that doesn't mean that there isn't room for change without keeping the services alive.
0: Makes sense. And you also mentioned that because you had that insider knowledge, you knew what was happening, you sort of actively tried act, try to make sure that your privacy is taken care of. Can you talk more about that? Like, what were you guys actually doing?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people recognize that their data is being shared across companies and and we try to turn a blind eye to it because we don't want to know that that's happening. But I think online privacy is super important in the sense of th- there's a re- it's online privacy as is as as important as the blinds on your windows or the doors on your house, right? We don't want people seeing what we're doing. We don't want people following us around. Imagine walking into a mall and then walking into a store and when you leave that store the store then sends an employee to follow you around to see where you are and what you're doing or to remind you, hey, 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 come back. Nobody would like that. And but the problem is it's happening all the time online. And we don't want to believe it. And, and the companies make it really hard because they don't want us to see it. So they kind of hide it in, in the background of your browser through things like cookies and trackers and pixels. Um, so the first thing that we did is when we're working on Cider, is we built a functionality in that is, is intended to block trackers, cookies. Uh, sends a do not track request to the websites that you visit, uh, blocks Google's new topics APIs. And again, the idea is that it's seamless, it's simple. Once you turn the functionality on, it won't change your browsing experience, but what it does is it adds a layer of security. The same way when you have blinds, you can see outside or you can close them or whatever. It's, it's It just works seamlessly. It doesn't change the functionality.
0: Got it, makes sense. And you also mentioned about the data sharing policy that companies had between themselves. They were sharing data within companies, what was happening over there? I have no idea about, I had no idea about this before.
1: Yeah, it was a trial. I actually don't know if it ended up going through, but essentially three large companies uh, were talking about the idea of, of sharing customer information. And because they were large, they, they probably had a lot of overlap. And the purpose of this was to try and see if you can build efficiencies. So here's the situation. Companies want to use this data because it's valuable. It helps drive better marketing, which ends up leading to more sales. But the problem is companies a lot of times can only collect the information on their customers based on the interactions that they have with their customers. So you might see someone who showed up on your website, how long they were on your website, what they looked at, and then they leave. That's limited. Um, So what they want to do is they want to follow you around. Or what they want to do is they want to see if they can get other information about you from other sources. Now, here's my theory. My theory is, hey, if you want to get to know me, that's totally fine. But it should be done in an ethical and, and... in conscious manner that respects my privacy. So first thing that needs to happen is you need to ask me. You can't just go to a different company and take it from me. So there needs to be a way to permission a permission-based ethical manner in order to source this data. And the second component then here becomes it's like okay, cool. Now you have my information. That's cool. What are you going to do with that information? I need to be okay with understanding that. Um, are you going you should not be giving it forward. That's the first thing. But number 2, are you using it to target me with personalized products, hey, that's actually kind of interesting. I might be interested in what you have to give me instead of pure randomness. So that brings utility to both of us. And that totally makes sense. So in that case, data then brings value to both components here. Data brings value to the user and data brings value to the company. And what needs to happen is you need to do that in an in ethical permission-based manner. And then the third thing here that happens is once you have permission, the quality of data becomes better for the companies as well. Because I'm saying, hey, yeah, I'm willing to share this information. So what you're getting is is data that is vetted, it's true, um, and it's it's usable, and and it creates an ecosystem of of respect, transparency, and reliability.
0: That makes so much sense. If you just ask, and if the user is ready, they might be maybe they might share even more high quality data with you. Uh, that's that could that might happen. I'm curious. Example so, Benza. sorry, go ahead. Yeah, please go ahead. Yeah. And maybe to build into that, here's, here's where I see it
1: going. And this is, this is my theory, theory of where the world is going to go. Data is an asset. Data is like cash. What we do with cash is we don't just kind of hand it out everywhere we go saying, hey, look, I have cash. What happens with cash is we store it. And then we choose when to uh, give it to someone. And that's kind of like spending it. The way that the internet works is you're able to access services by sharing your data. That's how it works. But right now we don't know how much we're paying. I don't know how much I'm paying Google. I don't know how much I'm paying Facebook. I don't know how much I'm paying any of the websites I go to, but they're taking my data data as an asset. I believe in a future where it's going to be a transparent and clear interaction where you have your data stored in a, in a very powerful mechanism, whether it be a decentralized blockchain like CIDR or whether it be some sort of data bank or data trust. And then you're able to pay for those services using your data, but then it will be a clear transaction and there will be an end point to that transaction. What happens is when you leave, you have the right to say, okay, I'm going to stop paying you now. You're not going to take any more data from me. And those are conversations that are not happening in today's data ecosystem, but what need to happen.
0: Let's dive more into this. So why do we need a decentralized blockchain for making sure that the system actually works and efficiently works? So I'm a purist on this one. Um, what the reason
1: why I believe it is because in a system where you have a blockchain, it makes it a lot more difficult for any bad actor uh, to be able to to jump on board. It also reduces the likelihood of a hack and, and being able to pass on data. A lot of times what happens is your data is stored by these companies and those companies don't have the best privacy policies. So they, it gets hacked and your data gets taken. Imagine storing your money in a bank without a proper vault and, and your money gets taken away, hmm. right? So in the same way, we need to make sure that the security layers around your data are powerful and robust. So what we've done is we've, we're working on a system that essentially... De- uh, encrypts your data and makes it so that even if someone accesses it, even if someone breaks into that vault, they cannot um, they cannot actually uh, see what your data is saying. It's just mumbo jumbo. Then what we have is a smart contract which says with only with your permission, only when you give permission, can your data be decrypted and, and be shared. And, and that's the power of it. Because even if we wanted to access that information, we can't. It's encrypted. It's only with the user's permission that that can occur. And I think tools like that is what
0: creates true data ownership. Right. So this makes a lot of sense. When you say royalties, when you say decentralized blockchain, the first thing that comes to mind is, okay, this should be an NFT. This should be an NFT, which companies can ask you that, hey, can we purchase? You click yes. And then, okay, now you take the data. If... Uh, if the data keeps on being shared with more and more companies, you keep earning royalties based on that. So this is what I'm thinking right now. But I'm actually curious. So how have you visualized the ideal user flow over here, where a company, they need to do something, do some research, need to do some product survey, and now they need some data, they ask you for data, how do you how do you give them your data? Like, how does that interaction look like?
1: Yeah, the idea, is, again, goes back to seamlessness. How do we make sure that we're doing this in a way that uh, works with all parties? Well, the first thing that has to happen is it has to be seamless for the user. Um, the user mm. doesn't want the, the pain of of consistently opting in and out. We've seen that every website you go to where it asks you, hey, we have cookies. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it, the first thing that we have to do is have a, a robust and easy method mechanism for, for the users. So the user sets up their settings one time to say, hey, this is what I'm okay with. This is what I'm not okay with. These are the types of organizations. These are the types of data and so forth. Then what happens is the company can come up and make a request. When the company makes a request, we're able to see who um, has opted in that meets that request requirements. We're able to give a notification to the user and we're able to make that transaction. But again, the powerful mechanism here is the ability to opt out once you've opted in, right? The problem in today's world is your data has been given. And getting your data back is, is is such a difficult task and it's intentionally difficult. These companies have made it extremely difficult. But when your data is, is yours and, and it's coming from your source, you have the right to cut that pipeline off. And that's, what, and that's what needs to happen. So it would be, you set it up, don't have to think about it. It continues to work. If you ever check your dashboard, you get to see who has made requests, who has opted, who has gone through. But
0: at any point you can opt out, take back, cut that pipeline off. Interesting. So like the first thought that comes to my mind is like, what if the company took the data and now they got this big table of all the data that's coming through this decentralized blockchain and then they just replicated the data. So it's no more encrypted in case the customer or in case the user just cuts it off. How do you think about that? Or would this data only uh, be based on blockchain so that they cannot replicate? If the user cuts, it's out. Like, how do you it's think about question. that?
1: It's a good question. And that's part of our our, our secret sauce. So what we're working on is, on is making it in a way that it, we can give that information, but then cut it off. So it's about using our data systems, our data sources, our, our servers, um, and making sure that, that it never gets housed by them, but also having a, for, a way to enforce it. So being able to meaningfully say, hey, like, we, we will be coming to make sure that that data is not there anymore. And the thing, last thing is we do have um, policy on our side. There is a policy in place where once the company, once a person has opted out, the company must comply. So you have layers of security, both on a, a company layer um, and then also on a policy layer in which uh,
0: this has to be enforced. Right, got it, got it. Like, one thing I'm thinking is that this data is only accessible via CIDR. There's no way to replicate it. Just like, you know, there are some apps that just say that you cannot screenshot, take a screenshot over here. So, similarly, this data is only accessible through CIDR. So, a company cannot make any replica. But, okay, good point. Now, I'm really curious about this question. So, there are so many data consultants out there, and a data consultant's job is to be really, in general, anybody's goal is always to be really good at what they do. And a data consultant can only be good if they get as much data as possible so that they can make good analysis out of it. Why aren't or why is it that only you guys thought about this? Why are not more and more data consultants speaking about this? I, I think they
1: are. I think they are. I think uh, Deloitte does a great job of, of doing data ethics and AI ethics. Um, I think there is a genuine fear out there that uh, data is so powerful and AI is becoming even more powerful. And that there is a, a layer of ethical AI that needs to be considered. We see this very um, strongly in in Public sector and government, where they every single time they implement a model, they they try at least to make sure that there is no um, consequences that are not considered or, or unforeseen. So, I think there is a general sense of of we need better, but the urgency isn't there because you don't see it. And, and I think what we're trying to do is say, hey, we're providing a tool where again, you don't need to see it. We just you just know it works. Um, so if, if the problem is something you can't see, I think the solution needs to be something you can't see either. Um, and that's the big change here, where a lot of times you have to jump through hoops and download things that are annoying and, and continuously say no. No, The answer is, has to be as, as simple as the problem. It has to be something that works seamlessly in the background.
0: Makes sense. And you mentioned that definitely there must be training around data ethics, how to use data, how to capture only the data that you actually would need what are the top 3 learnings or like what do you actually learn in these data ethics workshops or courses
1: um i think the first thing is is exactly what you said so it's the idea that hey does it, it does my use case align with my it, can the can the user see reasonably why i'm using this data in this way right so if you're a bank and you're using data for fraud analytics totally makes sense right i can totally see why you're doing that but if you're a bank and you're using my data to I don't know, banks are interesting because they're investment vehicles, but like to, to check on health, why do you need my health data? My bank does not need my health data, right? Um, and that's when it becomes a little creepy. Then that's when it seems like it's an overreach. So I think that's the, the first component here. Um, and then there's other components being like, hey, there's, there's unforeseen uh, circumstances of certain models. You might have certain biases that are built into particular models that are hurting a particular demographic or are, are putting people at risk and not letting them succeed. Those need to be captured early right? Um, so you need to have the right testing mechanisms in place um, that allow for those to be captured before they do harm. Um, and and there's there's countless other things like, hey, is, is my data being shared? Like, does, is there a third party that's, that's taking this data that shouldn't have access to this data? Um, I think really it, it comes back down to the idea of privacy. If I know information about you, uh, is the person okay with me sharing that information or using that information, right? If I know what your income is should i be telling that to the person who's uh your your enemy or or anything of that nature no like that's just general in like human nature we need to be able to protect others privacy so it needs to be the same way with these companies
0: this is actually really cool because this reminds me of a particular app that I installed. i'm not sure what it's called i believe it's called Miner or mine in general have you heard of mine or minor something like that no i don't recall Okay, so what they basically do is they basically show you that what all companies have your data, right, from the on the internet overall. And what happens is now they show you all the data. And you can with one click of button, they will send an email to them that hey, I do not want my data with you, could you please delete it. And then it also shows you steps that okay, today you send their email, the next step is when they actually respond. And the third step is when they actually delete your data. So they actually track the progress of all the companies that have your data, who you have sent this email, please read your data. And finally, when they actually delete your data. So that I thought, I think is really cool what they're doing.
1: Oh, I agree. And I've seen other tools like that. So I haven't seen minor in specific, but I've seen definitely other tools that do that. And I, and I absolutely love it. I love that. One, I love that people are using these tools because it means that they're stepping up to, to own what mm. is theirs. Uh, and I love too, that there are tools out there that are making this more accessible, right? Because like I said, these companies make it extremely difficult to, um, to do that. I think what becomes a little bit more difficult there um, is, is that not all these tools are free. I, I wish they were a little mm. bit more accessible. Um, and, and that's one of our missions, again, simplicity, make it free. Um, and then the other thing is, uh, I, I wish they were less visible, right? Like I said, like these ones, you're to go through a manual process of uh, this is what you got to do, then this is what you got to do. So mm. I, I love these tools because I, I principally, I stand 100% with them. What I'd also be curious about, and I think some tools do this, so I don't know if the one that you mentioned is, hey, these companies have your data. I'm curious to know, hey, these companies have your data, and this is how much your data is worth. Like like give that person the option to say, hey, I'm actually okay with that person having my data, but hey, make them pay me. Um, so I think data has value and, and and we need to make sure we also look at it from that angle as well. Data is an investment vehicle, data is a purchasing vehicle um, and and it's not just about hoarding it, but it's also about understanding it and, and recognizing that value.
0: Makes sense. I'm, I'm really curious. So you mentioned what your data is worth at Deloitte. Do you think, or in general, being a data consultant, are you, <clears throat> are you trying to evaluate that? Whose data and how, what's the worth of this particular person's data?
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's honestly, it, that answer differs depending on who you ask, right? Um, and I've seen that firsthand based on some of the projects that I did where we had to help companies monetize their data or understand the value of the data assets. And depending on what model you use, you can evaluate that um, data differently. The truth be told, the only way that that will ever happen, that we have a true value of data, is once we have a fair um, and transparent data exchange between users and, and companies. Because then you can say, "Hey, the user is not willing to share their data unless you give this much," and the company's willing to give a certain price. And once you have a fair and transparent exchange, is when you'll get the true value of data. Um, There are other ways to do it as well. Um, I I think one of the there's a really cool book I read or something of that nature where they talked about if you paid for alternatives to Google, how much would you be paying? And it's something the magnitude of like 120 something dollars. So right there, there you go. Your, the value of your data to Google is $120-something, right? Uh, what we've done is we've done some forecasting to say, uh, hey, uh, people can make about $144 a year uh, just passively collecting and, and seeing insights. Or, or another way to see it is how much do you think uh, the ads you see, what's the value of all the ads you see in a year, right? That there's, your data is being used in so many different ways. Uh, and it's in the hundreds of dollars for sure.
0: That's pretty cool. You mentioned ads, and I just want to know from you that being a data consultant, being, or being in the data world, how you think about being, what's the right word? Being uh, like not affected by ads. Do, how many ads you actually click on? Uh, the idea of being like desensitized to the ads? Exactly, exactly. I was trying to well, come they, up with, with that word, yeah.
1: See, see, that's an interesting one, right? Because companies recognize that too. Companies recognize that people are becoming desensitized and they're working on ways to sensitize you again. And that's that's both beautiful, but also scary because let's think about this on a motive perspective. The motive here is, hey, I need to do something, anything to make this person click, right? And every company is competing for your click because you have a certain number of time or a certain number of dollars you're gonna spend. So it's beautiful in the sense that we have this crazy um, competition, but it's also scary in the sense that as they become more and more desperate for your click, they become more and more desperate for your data because they wanna personalize. And they become more and more desperate to become interwoven and and put in the middle of your content and and become more intrusive. So it's both a a gift and a curse in that sense, right? Where it's companies recognize that they need to personalize in order to stand out. To personalize, you need data. For data, you become desperate. And then you do some things that that the consumer wouldn't be happy with, right? Or trade that around and now say, hey, actually, I'm going to just create a direct relationship with this customer. And I'm going to ethically access their data, and I'm going to give them stuff that matters to them. Now imagine seeing half the ads that you were seeing before, uh, and then getting ads that are highly relevant to you and stuff that you actually care about, and you're not becoming desensitized. Um, and, and I think that's what it is. That's how, and that's how it should be. Uh, I'm not I'm not necessarily against ads. I think uh, ads provide us a lot of free services that we wouldn't get access to otherwise. But what I am for is, is doing it in a way, again, that respects the user. It's about right, restoring definitely. balance to the internet, I think.
0: Definitely, definitely. I believe that as I'm also looking at ads, I'm also trying to analyze, okay, how do I, do I click on any ads? I don't think I'm clicking on any ads. So why are these companies spending so much? But what I also understand is because there's an ad, now I'm aware of it. And it's a long-term effect. It's really hard for companies to now like say that, okay, we're going to run an ad today. If the CTR is 2%, we failed. No, I believe that now they have to think more long-term that, okay, let's run these ads for two months and then we will see a change in people's mind that, okay, for this category, they think about our name. Our name is synonymous for this category. And that's why they will maybe buy physically, not even online. So it's really hard to find the uh, direct direct ROI for the ads that they are running right now.
1: Yeah, that's exactly yeah. A lot of these ads are not intended for you to, uh, use right now they know that you're going to need this in three months from now and that's what mm-hmm. it is right exactly if they if they know you're exactly. a founder and you're starting something they know that six months from now you're going to need a crm let's target them now so when they need a crm they think of us right and definitely that's, that's i think hubspot is
0: doing a great job at this i think <laughs> crm is a great example i think hubspot is a great example where it's all about hubspot podcast network they have i think they have a really cool strategy so what they're doing is they are basically finding these podcasts that are heard by founders. And mainly I would see that, okay, podcast is not something that everybody has the patience to listen to. There are some, okay, again, it's my hypothesis, but I believe that there's a, a huge concentration of people who are founders who listen to podcasts. And what happens is that now, that now because you have a huge concentration of founders over here listening to these great podcasts, HubSpot picks them. HubSpot is like, okay, we'll manage all the back end. You just focus on make, creating good content. We'll manage partnership. We'll give you the money. We'll give you the post-production, high quality post-production. You just focus on content. And now what you have to do, just keep running these 30 second ads of HubSpot and keep building them up to it. So I can see like there's so many HubSpot podcasts that I listen to and I never thought of buying them before. But now that I need a CRM, I'm considering buying HubSpot. So that's really yeah. interesting.
1: I mean, I mean, let's think about this from the perspective of the company. It's all about being in the right place at the right time with the right person. And, and it sounds like they're doing that, and that, that's effective. Uh, but getting to the right person at the right time at the right place is, is a very tricky data question.
0: Exactly. Exactly. That's so true. All right. So let's talk about your founder story now. So did you just quit your job one day at Deloitte and be like, all right, now I'm going to control your data, earn royalty only? <laughs> Um, yeah,
1: it was actually side of desk for a while. I, I, me and Will were like, "Hey, let's just let's do this. Let's build something. Let's see how it goes." We initially built it for ourselves. It, it's a browser extension that blocked cookies, trackers, ads, and send do not require track requests. It was seamless; nobody noticed that it was on. Um, I've showed it to a couple of friends. They're like, "Hey, wh- what? Like, send me that." And and it, it just kind of took from there where we realized, "Hey, we, maybe we're onto something here. Like, there clearly is a problem. We solved it for ourselves. Others want it solved as well." Um, put up a landing page, uh, zero advertising. And, and we started seeing thousands of people showing up to our website. Um, and, and we had so many people signing off for the wait list. We're like, okay, definitely onto something now. That's when we started taking it a little bit more seriously. Um, what really helped us, and, and I think it, this is uh, true for a lot, of, a lot of companies, is we got into this accelerator, Berkeley Skydeck. Love them. They're, they're absolutely incredible. Um, a lot of times, people look at accelerators as as a destination. The, the accelerators are, are a launching pad to help you succeed, and they succeed when you succeed. So Berk- Berkeley Skydeck was is very institutional to us to to help us um, figure out how to effectively grow, how to effectively build, and effectively scale, but also provide the advi- right advisory environment. Uh, so now we are we're, we're back and forth from from San Francisco and Toronto, uh, obviously doing cider full time, um, and and it's it's a rewarding journey. And, and it has a lot to do with the idea that it's not just a product. It really is a mission where we are trying to create an internet where you own and get compensated for your data. Um, and that mission drives us. It, it's a good one. It's fun um, because we're rethinking how the entire internet works and you don't get to do that
0: every day. Um, so I, I'm just excited that that that's the day job. Definitely. Definitely. I think it's definitely rewarding. Uh, I'm curious. So, you mentioned that you suddenly got a huge amount of traffic online. Where were you initially getting a lot of traffic from? Were just people searching that, hey, privacy, give me an extension that blocks my ad. I don't want to go for ad block. Let's go CIDR.
1: Ad block is actually not one of our main drivers. Like I don't think people think of ad block when they think of CIDR. I think it's, it's really the acronym, control your data or earn royalties. Um, people were just searching for ways to control their data. And that just validated the fact that people want this, right? So for us, it was a, it was a huge momentum builder to see that. Two, two dudes randomly sitting in their house building this can can get people showing up because they build something that people care about, right? Um, and, and again, it's, it's, it's just really the fact that I guess having a cool name but but having the right message that for, for people to read is is really what it is.
0: Right. And did you guys build on your own or did you have some sort of did you hire software engineers? yeah, Will's
1: Will's relatively technical. So he was able to to work on it. We also brought in a, a friend of ours, Ian. Shout outs to Ian. Great gentleman. Uh, he was helping us throughout the entire thing. And we had some amazing advisory. Uh, one of my friends, uh, I won't say his name because he's very privacy oriented, but good friend since when I was a kid. Um, he based out, of, based out of SF, he's been advising us throughout this entire, entire uh, thing. And he's just been really great. So we had a good team around us the whole time. Um, and we were able to do this. I think what we learned later on and maybe my advice to to new founders is when you do mvp really think mvp we when you're when you're thinking of changing the internet you think of all these crazy big ideas but when it comes to building an mvp you have to be simple uh and i think that was a a thing that we got stuck in where we tried to build all these big and fancy things but really we needed to start off as easy and simple as possible and build from there um but i I think we're getting a grasp of that now we're getting better at it at least
0: definitely what what did your first mvp look
1: like uh, the first demo uh, The first demo looks similar to where it is now, but we we ended up like when we were first ideating it, we created these crazy dashboards that had no purpose other than looking cool. So there was like, here's your data, here's what cool insights we have about you, and um, a lot of randomness that was eye candy, but not functional. Um, we also started building in other things like, okay, like, like if we wanted to do early monetization, what if we did uh, search, and we started building search partnerships, and we're like, okay, what if we did... Uh, landing pages and home pages and we had so much because we're reimagining the internet right like you there's like what is internet internet is searching landing uh buying uh finding sharing and we're thinking of ways to change all of that but that, that was the problem right when you're starting with an mvp you have to start small you have to start with a particular use case in, in a very um very particular audience so we scaled a lot back and we spent a lot of dev hours on stuff that honestly we'll do later but should it have been the mvp
0: Right. This this definitely reminds me of someone who mentioned someone who came on the pod and he mentioned a really good good example of building an MVP. So he's like, hey, if you want to travel from point A to point B, ideally you would need a car. Now, an MVP is not a broken car. MVP is a skateboard. It takes yeah. you from A to B and it just works. It has to work and it's the most it's a minimum viable product basically. So you don't have to build a broken car because obviously you cannot build a, a complete car in one day or one month. But you all you can do is you can build a really good skateboard to start from there. So I thought that's a really good example. Yeah, that's that's probably the best example. That's exactly what it is. Um,
1: And having a skateboard that can help showcase what this is going to be and solve the problem quick enough and then help you go, right? Because after that, with that skateboard, you're able to get users, you're able to get funding and build it into a car later.
0: Definitely, definitely. Uh, Now, I'm curious, like, how do you think about the own royalties vertical? So you mentioned, like, own royalties, one of the major portion of the company. So I'm curious, like, how are you thinking about that? Yeah, uh, it
1: all comes back to the permission element of this, right? So the idea here is companies can use this data and can do some great things with this data. Um, and, and if you do choose to share your information, you deserve to get to paid for that. So that this goes back to that idea of a transparent transaction, right? Uh, can we make sure that you're getting paid your fair share of it? So uh, the royalties element is exactly that. If you do choose to share your information, uh, we're able to um, make sure that you're getting paid um, a fair amount. Right now, that fair amount is dedicated or like dictated by Cider because it's it's early stages and companies don't want to have a bidding process yet. But eventually, we are going to be working towards a bidding process so that you can actually have um, price fluctuations. And this is future thinking. I want to make that very clear. But well, one of the things that um, we're, we're considering is having a token that can actually fluctuate with value. So what happens is, is you, companies buy this token at a market value, that token then goes to the user, uh, and then the user can then sell that token at market value. So what that does is it creates a market exchange where the, the user can, has a token that is the value of data. Um, and, and that's a really cool mechanism as well. So that's that the tokenomics there of, of using that is powerful. But again, and, and the reason we have the future, the reason that that's future and not right now is because even though tokens are brilliant, they're not um, easily understood by everyone. And simplicity is very important, right? So, setting up a wallet and selling a token on the exchange isn't accessible to everyone. So, we'll be doing that eventually later.
0: Definitely. I think the tokenomics, bringing that into your business is definitely going to be complicated, but it's interesting that you're thinking about it right now. I know the best example that I've seen so far is Brain Trust. Have you heard of Brain Trust? No, tell me about Brain Trust. It's basically a Web3 talent marketplace. And yeah, the entire community is basically a DAO. They appeared on the podcast as well, the founder. And yeah, like it's all about, like they are the fastest growing Web3 business basically. They have implemented the tokenomics right. They have made sure that they are bringing the Web2 companies over here to participate. They are making sure that they're bringing the right people in place. So yeah, they got everything. And now they are just making sure that people understand that, hey, this is just like your normal thing. We are talent marketplace. It's just that it operates on Web3. And we are not going to confuse you with all the Web3 uh, jargons. We are just using that as a way to make your existing experience 10x better. So I think the entire way that they went about it was really cool. I love this. Yeah, I'm looking at their website right now. Uh,
1: yeah, that's exactly what it is. Web3 is in blockchain is, is an infrastructure. Um, cloud changed the world, but nobody sees the cloud. It's the same thing with, with, with uh, blockchain. It's going to be very, very, very impactful. It's going to take a while. I think there's a lot of use cases that are going to be a re- stick around and some that uh, will need to take a couple of years before they become relevant. But that's exactly it. It's, it's not supposed to be something that completely destroys your user experience. It's supposed to be
0: something that enhances it and works seamlessly in the background. Definitely, definitely. Um, I'm actually curious. So what are the expectations versus reality of being a founder? expectations versus
1: reality. I have some for San Francisco. So anyone listening to this podcast who's not from San Francisco. There are not many palm trees in San Francisco. <laughs> I thought there was going to be a oh, ton wow. of palm trees. <laughs> sorry. It's totally random, but like moving to the Valley, I thought I was going to see palm trees everywhere. There are not palm trees in San Francisco. Um, sorry. That was a silly one. Um, I think the reality uh, here, I have, I, have, I have a serious one too. Um, being being a founder is, is, is rewarding, but it's hard. It's rewarding because you're working on something that you truly believe in, or I, I hope that you truly believe in. And, and that makes your day-to-day job a lot more fun, but it also sucks a lot of time out of you. And it that part where it sucks time out of you doesn't just impact you. It impacts your relationships. And And I heard that, but I didn't take it seriously when, when I first started. I was like, hey, my relationships are great. And they are. They're very solid. But relationships require fostering and care and love. And so does your startup. Um, and it becomes a very tricky balancing act. So when you're starting a company, you have to talk to the people that you, that you love and care about to let them know, Hey, like life's about to get really crazy. I'm excited for this journey. Um, and hopefully they understand why you may not see them all the time. Um, and, and that was, and I, I think that was a very humbling experience for, for a lot of people that I know, including myself, where it's like, Hey, um, I'm probably not gonna see you all the time cause I'm going to be working, but it, it's about like maybe skipping out on that, that trip with the guys or, or or whatever. But you're able to have fun. It's not saying that you don't, but it's also you have to consciously keep an eye out for your relationships and make sure they're strong. Uh, the other thing was, uh, the moment you build it, they won't always show up. <laughs> so uh, for us, it was like, hey, we're getting all this traction on our website. We're going to be 100,000 users in a week. Uh, it's a little humbling when you realize it doesn't work that way. Um, you will build something brilliant, uh, but it takes a little bit of time for for people to actually discover. And, and you have to consider to iterate. Uh, you have to be okay with the idea of taking critical feedback, and, and making changes. So that was a big one. And I think the final one, so the relationship was one. Number two is growth takes time. And number three um, is you are going to meet some incredible people along the founder journey. People that you think you would never bump into. Um, executives, SF, CMOs, CEOs, other founders, fund managers, like you will bump into some incredible people. And you will tell them about your idea and they will give you feedback their feedback may contradict each other. You do not have to action that feedback. <laughs> we spent a lot of time churning and, and spinning on our idea because people were giving us their thoughts. We, we pitched them our idea. They liked the idea. They gave us some feedback saying, hey, what, did, what about this? We would run away being like, oh my God, so-and-so just told us to do this and we'd start doing it. And we realized really quickly that, hey, some feedback is great feedback. Other feedback is feedback because they only heard your idea for an hour or half an hour and they just had a thought. And it's not always a good thought. So you have to be able to be very mission-driven, recognize what is a good idea that drives, drives with your mission and what should be put on the back burner. So again, for us, it was uh, going back to the idea that an MVP is an MVP and you don't have to uh, overstretch the MVP.
0: That's really cool. My, this is really cool what you shared because my buddy Gregory, he also hopped on the pod before. He shared a really cool story that when he used to get advice, what he would do is he would ask them that, hey, would you actually give me money if I build on top of your advice? And they're like, yeah, ah. I would give. But he went next step. He was like, hey, would you donate me like ten dollars right now? Because obviously the product is going to take some time to build. So would you donate ten dollars to me right now if I build that? So I think that's a great way to like you know have people put money where their mouth is. I forgot the phrase exactly, but yeah, that makes them think even harder that hey, I just don't want to spit out any advice. I want to make sure it it's worth it. I really like that. So over time it was. Uh, would you invest in me if I do this? And then would you give me $10 right now? If Sorry, what was it? Exactly. Right. So you can ask them that, hey, would you pay me for it? But again, that is very hypothetical that, hey, in a month, you will come to them and you will ask them for money. And again, they might say that, oh, I forgot what we talked about. So instead, ask them, would you donate me $10 right now for building this? Because they have to give you money right now. And you also don't have the product. So you have to ask for a donation, basically.
1: I really like that. And, and I think that that's maybe a mechanism I'll use because people always give advice, uh, but are they willing to stand behind their advice is really the question. I like that a lot. Exactly, exactly. Now, I'm curious, like what is the importance of having a co-founder for you? Extremely important. Uh, Will is absolutely incredible. He's, he's the yin to my yang. Um, the, the joke is that I'm bearded Will and he's beardless Sukman. Um, we, we get along very well and we compliment each other very well. Both in skill sets and personality. So um, I'll, I'll, actually, i want to be brutally honest here. What happens is everyone kind of goes through their flows, right? I'm going through a flow right now where I'm super motivated in the market. Um, and there's going to be a flow where I'm exhausted and it, work seems like a drag. And those are the moments where, where co-founders are the most important. Because if it's just one single person, it's really hard to get out of those drags. And if you're founding a company and you get stuck in a drag, it becomes very easy to quit. But when you have a co-founder that you're accountable to, that you have meetings with, that you have to get work done by, it holds each other accountable, right? And that's very, very, very critical. Where we're, we're two guys building something. We don't have to have something done by Thursday, but I promised him I'll get it done by Thursday, so I'm going to get it done by Thursday. So having a co-founder is very important in that perspective. And I think uh, Paul Graham talks about that a lot. The other one is is complementary skill sets. So will is far more technical than i am and i'm far more i'm not far more strategic i have a more strategic background than he does um and i think that comp uh, complementary skill set allows us to build think and create in, in a very cool cycle right where uh we're able to brainstorm ideate build brainstorm ideate build and then that cycle keeps going um and having those complementary skill sets makes the business i hate operations he loves operations he can do accounting and finance and all that good stuff Man, all I want to do is think about the product and marketing, and he's so good at the other stuff. So I <laughs> appreciate it to that. So I think having a co-founder is really important. I've actually seen firsthand a lot of founders who um, didn't have co-founders, and unfortunately, they fell into that stump that I talked about and just never came out of it. They actually either ended up pivoting or they just stuck with their day
0: jobs. So it's really important to, to have someone to keep you accountable definitely very important i believe yeah last year I, when i was building my thing i met my childhood buddy and we were like hey instead of just hanging out and having beers why not build something together uh that's how we got, also going to spend more time together because, well, why not yeah, super super and build something together. exactly 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 and i think just the energy of having two guys we're talking about one thing and think of these crazy ideas exactly as you mentioned right like thinking about that oh we're going to crush this 100k users the very first day we were doing the same thing like thinking yeah. about the uh the our one 4.0 like the fourth version of how it would look like like we had this entire roadmap so it was super cool uh yeah that, that's that's the best time I'm, I'm actually curious so you i saw you guys have put out two videos feel free feel free to not answer this if you're not comfortable but i'm curious yeah. you put out two videos of yc getting into yc or the application video for yc what was that process like how did it turn out can you share more about that
1: yeah, I'll start off by saying we didn't get into YC, but those videos were super, super useful. Um, mm. So our, one of our videos, didn't go viral, but it was very popular. Like I think it was the most watched YC video of a certain cohort or whatever. And we got thousands of people showing up to our website just from that video. Um, and we got tons of comments saying, hey, this is a brilliant idea. This is going to go so far. This is amazing. Sure, we didn't get into YC, but that that validated a lot of, of what we were building. Um and, and a crazy thing came out of that. So true story. We were at a conference in Toronto called Collision, and every every so often, someone will walk up to us, being like, "Hey, you're those two guys from that YC video. You're building that thing." Uh, oh, wow. And it, it was crazy. It felt like celebrities at a tech conference. Um, and to the point where these three three kids uh, from UFT I don't want to call them kids. Uh, these three three uh, gentlemen from UFT uh, ran up to us at one of the events and were like. Hey, you're you're Will and Sookman. Uh, we saw your your YC video. We're obsessed with your idea. We want to work for you, and that was such a rewarding moment. And it really made us realize that hey, like this is something that that people are willing to to work on. they out of their way. So I, I think even though we didn't get into YC, it, it was still such such a rewarding process um and and again like it worked out for the best of us we got into a bunch of accelerators we ended up choosing berkeley skydeck uh, because of of their advisory network it was it was incredible um but uh, I,
0: i do not regret applying at all definitely i think what you guys should do is you should update the title to update rejected because there's just so much success bias out there people are only seeing the startups that are coming out that they just think that hey everything everyone who goes into yc they just everyone who applies for yc they just, they just get in so you have to do something like that to uh, capitalize on that rejection i'm doing it as we speak right now perfect let's do it let's do it <laughs> all right so my final question is sukman do you today believe that you are still a villain at work for <laughs> <laughs> sure it's a brilliant question i love it um I hope not. I really
1: hope not. No, I, I, don't, I don't think, at least I don't, I don't believe I'm the villain anymore. I, I feel like I'm fighting for a cause. Um, I, I hope there's no unforeseen circumstances of, of what I'm fighting for. But I, I do believe that the world should be one in which you have the right to privacy in which you have the right to be compensated whenever you choose to share your assets, such as your data, and one where this can be done in a seamless way. I do think that's going to be a better world than the world that we live in today. I do think it's going to be a more equitable equitable, world than we live in today. Um, and, and it's the reason why I, why I get up in the morning. So I
0: hope I'm, making, I'm not the villain anymore because I don't want to wake up to be the villain. Definitely. So, Sukman, this was really good. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, my pleasure, Prashant. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I want to say thank you to you because you gave a platform
1: to a lot of companies and, and a lot of people listening who um, who are looking to go down this journey. So to shout out to you and, and the whole team to, to p- for putting this podcast together. And anyone listening who has an idea, my recommendation is just get started. A small step today might motivate an idea tomorrow, might make a connection the day after that, but that might snowball into something beautiful. So go make something beautiful, um, even if it's something small
0: definitely definitely thank you so much this was good thank you appreciate it have a good one